This podcast was recorded at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on That's Friday. That's a lie. It's 7.25 p.m. Oh, fake news. Okay, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was recorded at 7.25 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Keep up with our coverage at npr.org, on the NPR One app, and, of course, on your local public radio station. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, live at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. It's nice to be here. Shout out to our host, D.C.'s amazing member station, WAMU. They partner with us for the show. Thank you. So we are calling the show tonight, President Trump, What's Next? But before we start, I have one order of business. They told me backstage to put my shoes on because there might be nails on the floor. But I don't record any podcast episode until my shoes are off. So I'm taking them off. And now we can begin. All right. So we'll talk about Trump and what's next. We will talk about the news of the week. And there was a lot this week. There was some late breaking news just this evening. Um, And just like our regular weekly roundup, we will answer some of your questions that we actually got tonight from you all. Uh, And we'll end the show with Can't Let It Go, my favorite segment. And we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week. Before we go on, introductions. I am Sam Sanders, a reporter here at NPR. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Sam, did you see the sign for you over there before? No, Somebody has a sign, a Sam Sanders sign. Yeah, sure. I'll do it. I think it said, will you be my Valentine, Sam (laughs) Sanders? Done. All right. Yes, done. Milk chocolate, not dark chocolate. Thank you. Um, So, Ron, I do believe, from what I've seen, that this is the biggest crowd ever for any podcast taping ever in the history of podcast tapings. There. Right? That's, that's true. And, yeah. and we've been told that there are thousands and thousands of people outside waiting and trying to get in. Yeah. Which was actually yeah. like true, though, for a bit, though, because Trump would always say that at rallies, but there were, there were people outside. Yeah. yeah. Crowd yeah. control is hard. So a lot of folks here, I'm guessing, have heard the podcast before, but some people heard some promos for this on the radio. How many have not listened to our podcast before? Be honest, it's fine. Yeah, no, it's good. Thank you for being here. Thank and you. Taking a chance with us. We may let you down. Um, anyway, after the show, meet me in the lobby and I will personally take your phone and subscribe you to this podcast. Uh, Scott, describe how tonight will go. So we've got the four of us right now. We're going to talk about a couple newsy topics. Then we're going to do a shift change. Four other folks are going to come out. The rest of us, we're going to talk about some other things that happened this week. Then we're all going to come back. There's going to be some stools in the back, and we are going to answer questions from the listeners. So those are questions that you wrote out in the lobby. But we're also looking at Twitter, so if you tweet with that hashtag or if you tweeted any of us uh, over the course of the show, we'll take a look at it, and we'll, we'll get some of those questions in there, too. So for all you podcast listeners, we actually have some pretty cool illustrations of our faces up on the screen. I think we look pretty good. Ron's mustache is very... Fierce in the avatar, though. It's, like, it's yes. very pointy. It's, it's the mature yeah. Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the biggest news of this evening is the latest in this ongoing uh, court saga over um, President Trump's travel ban. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals kept in place a halt to the temporary ban. Um, we don't know... 
whether that was an easy D for the court, but it was unanimous. It was a significant D, no matter what, though. I think that's, that's fair to say. 29 page. So Ron is probably the person on stage that knows the most about it. What does this mean? President Trump said, see you in court. What is next? Well, first of all, fun's over. Uh, we're now going to talk about the federal judiciary. And uh, <laughs> I suspect there are a number of attorneys and lawyers present tonight who could probably talk about this, too. But let me just say that in the last couple of hours, there's been a certain amount of confusion over what the posture of the White House is, having lost three to nothing in the Ninth Circuit with the emergency panel. Now, one of the options is that the whole Ninth Circuit Court could vote and possibly overturn the emergency panel. Uh, that seemed like the least likely option, but there's some chance they might. At least one of the judges on that court is interested in having a vote. It's also possible the Supreme Court could get involved very quickly if the White House wanted to short-circuit the process and go straight to the Supreme Court. But as we all know, it's a short-handed court, four to four division, and it's not clear even that the president's position would find four votes on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So at this juncture, the White House is keeping all its options open. They may still go to the Supreme Court and they may issue a new executive order next week. I think a lot of us are expecting something very much like that. Yeah, and just in the last few hours, we've heard some more from the Trump White House. There were reports that they would not pursue this at the Supreme Court. Now they're saying that they might. But the president talked about this case on Air Force One. What did he say? Well, he talked about it on Air Force One. He also talked about it a little bit at the press conference he had today with the Prime Minister of Japan. And I think the most significant thing is that the White House is telegraphing the fact that they could just write an entirely new executive order. That could come out sometime next week, and they could start this process all over again. And I think that uh, whether or not they resolve the judicial questions, I think that would resolve a lot of the pushback they've gotten from Congress, because a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill who criticized them said that they don't necessarily have a problem with the ultimate end goal of curbing uh, refugees or, or immigration in one way or another. It was the process of it. It was the fact that the relevant agencies weren't involved. It was the fact that nobody bothered to tell Congress until it happened. Yeah, so Danielle actually read the whole thing last night to fall asleep. <laughs> This kind, of thing keep, this kind of thing keeps me awake. It's, it's a nail-biter. Um, there's a lot to unpack in the decision. Right. What are the big points? Uh, well, I'll tell you the things that stood out to me. Uh, one was that, the, was that the Trump administration made the argument that, guys, you can't review this. There's no judicial review. We get to decide what, what happens here. And the decision essentially says, um, no, we totally, get, <laughs> we totally get to review this. This is totally in our purview. That's one thing. A but a couple of other things stood out to me, and they are that they did acknowledge that, you know, government, you haven't really shown that there is a threat of terrorism, a special threat of terrorism from these seven countries, and a lot of people have been arguing that. The other thing is we've, talk we've already talked up here about how quickly the Trump administration can change its mind on something, and the court nodded to that in what is probably my favorite, if a little bit legalese, statement in here. It says... In light of the government's shifting interpretations of the executive order, we cannot say that the current interpretation by White House counsel, even if authoritative and binding, will persist past the immediate stage of these proceedings. So they're saying we don't trust you. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about the green card holder bit yes. here, but they're saying, you know, 
we just don't know how you're going to feel in the future, which is a little, I mean, I am not Nina Totenberg, but to my mind, that's remarkable. Yeah, Scott? And I think on that last point, what's been interesting about this whole process is just how much Trump's tweets and Trump's statements and off-the-cuff statements have, have become part of the legal process, oh, yeah. the way that, that Washington state uh, attorneys were quoting them. They were referenced uh, in the ruling itself. We've gotten used to the fact that Twitter is like the, the White House press room statement at this point in time. You yeah. know, like, and now, judges look at that now. Yeah, now it's part of the legal process yeah. as well. And well, you had and lawyers basically saying the fact that Trump spoke about a Muslim ban yeah. means that this might be part of that. Right, yes. They did look at his campaign statements. Now, there has been a little bit of pushback on the right about this. I believe it was Jonah Goldberg talking to Steve Inskeep this morning. He said... He would argue that you can't, you shouldn't be able to use campaign trail statements in this sort of proceeding because Donald Trump then takes office. He has all these advisors. These advisors may have convinced him otherwise. So that's what one of the arguments against this decision is. Yeah. And one other thing that's out for me is these judges saying very clearly the states do have standing. The states have a right mm -hmm. to go to court. Um, they can point to people in, in schools and colleges that aren't going to be able to be there because of this rule. Right. They have standing. Yes, that is one of the big things they point to is these uh, people going to the University of Washington or Washington State, for example. They're saying these people will be harmed by this. Yeah. So that gives these states the right to do this. Do we have any way of knowing how long this whole thing plays out? Run? <laughs> we, have a, we have a general idea of some of the parameters, uh, but it seems much more likely, and we're asking the question tonight, what's next? It's much more likely they are going to put out a new executive order, and a new executive order would have fresh authority, yeah. and it would presumably be constructed in a more careful way, and this it would be more vetted, and it would be brought forward in such a way that it might actually have some of the original desired effect, but not all. I have a question for you, Ron, um, with the timing of all of this, the way that these uh, court cases proceed and the way that Supreme Court confirmations proceed, is it a fair guess that if this gets to the Supreme Court, whether the injunction or the case itself, it's an eight-person court, or could this get to the court after Neil Gorsuch is on the court? And if that's the case, would he have to recuse himself since he's Trump's nominee? I don't see him recusing himself. I think that if his nomination goes through very smoothly, and at this point we still expect that it will, uh, some people even feel that by saying, as he said to some senators, that he found the president's tweets about the judiciary demoralizing and so forth, uh, that could actually help him secure the votes of some Democrats who were concerned he'd be a rubber stamp. If he gives every indication of being an independent mind, that may help him. I would guess he would be on the court by April, mm -hmm. and so it all depends on whether this goes to a trial or whether the showdown with the court comes on a temporary restraining order. And also, just to be clear, not all of this ruling was a loss for the president. Right. Uh, the, these judges still affirmed that in this regard, the president does have a lot of power mm -hmm. over things like immigration. Got to move on. Yeah. Another topic. Um, Nordstrom and Ivanka Trump. <laughs> for those that don't There's know... There's a Nordstrom right across the street. True fact, I have never <laughs> in my life shopped at Nordstrom. Used to be a Barnes & Noble. Now, now Nordstrom Rack, I'm all about, but not the Nordstrom. <laughs> anyway, um, there are details that you probably already know by now, but basically Nordstrom and a few other stores dropped Ivanka's clothing line. They say it's a business decision. The White House claims it's political um, because after the president's travel ban, Nordstrom sent a company-wide note saying that it valued immigrants and offered to support those affected by the order. Anyway, this is happening. Kellyanne Conway then goes on Fox News and literally says to go buy Ivanka's stuff. Um, 
This was a problem because federal ethics rules bar executive branch employees from profiting from their positions or helping their friends and family profit. It exempts the president, but not his staff. Um, so lots of folks say that she should get in trouble for this. Sean Spicer has said that she was counseled. counseled. I remember um, being counseled a few times when I was a kid. <laughs> This is really, really weird, but like ultimately, what's going to happen from this, if anything? Well, I think one really important thing did happen, and I cover Congress, so I think I look at a lot of things through this prism, but to me, one of the most interesting things that, that came as a result of all of this was a letter written by Jason Chaffetz and, and Elijah Cummings, the, the top Republican and top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. And they sent a letter to the, uh, the Office of Government Ethics basically saying, this is not okay. This violates ethics rules. And what was most interesting to me, they said that, you know, you, normally we refer this to a superior. In this case, our superior is President Trump. And he has an inherent conflict of interest on this because it's about his daughter's uh, business. This is the first time that Jason Chaffetz and House Republicans have stood up and said, wait a second, you crossed the line. Because by and large, by and large, when it comes to the conflict of interest issue, Jason Chaffetz has said that's not really something we're going to take a look at. Uh, the one thing he had done up until this point was request a copy of the lease that Trump had signed to, uh, to lease the old post office just down the block, uh, because there's a line in that lease saying that you can't operate this hotel, you can't profit off this hotel if you're an office holder, and he's, of course, an office yes. holder who profits off of that hotel. <laughs> I guess we should talk about, at least for me, what seems to be this new constant is this seeming of like constant protests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you've seen the sign where it's the like, protest is a new branch. It's just happening everywhere, every day. Yeah. Um, and there was a moment this week, speaking of Jason Chaffetz, he had a town hall in Utah last night and protesters kind of took it over and it felt like, very much like the Tea Party at town halls what, eight years ago? Roughly. What's that about? Yeah, was Is a, this the Tea Party of the left? A summer of 2009, and of course that Tea Party rebellion largely focused initially on taxes, but by the summer town halls they had focused over on the Affordable Care Act. And strangely enough, the folks now at these town halls are in defense in large part of Obamacare. Clearly not an accident. I mean, people are incensed on the other side of this issue, and there are a lot of people who didn't like the Affordable Care Act because they felt it didn't go far enough. It wasn't close enough to single payer. Uh, late last night, the Senate approved Tom Price as the new Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is not only an opponent of the ACA, but has a lot of problems with other programs uh, such as Medicaid, even Medicare. So we will see. We're in for a new era. And the people may very well take the town hall route again, especially since it's been so well modeled. Uh, by the pushback against Obamacare. But a couple of things that really might make this not like the Tea Party is, first of all, I suppose there's an overarching lack of unification thus far. There's plenty of protesting. There are lots of people. There's a lot of energy. But unlike the Tea Party, there's not even a unifying name. Yes. Now, you may say that's not a big deal, except like... That may reflect also, you have a lot of different factions. You have a lot of different things being protested about. And so the question is whether all of this energy can be directed in one particular direction. But I think that one thing that Democrats, especially elected Democrats, are trying to wrestle with is that they are, they are all for aggressive, motivated, intense protesting and organizing. But I think a lot of senators and House members and their staffs are wondering 
they're concerned it might go too far or they're concerned that it's going to push them in a direction that they don't see is just reasonable in order to, even if you're aggressively opposing the president, um, you know, f having a functioning government work. Uh, one thing that happened today, right, when we were getting ready for the show is, I guess, Betsy DeVos tried to go to a public school in Washington, D.C. today. She was, of course, very controversial uh, pick for education secretary. That was the hardest video to watch. It was mm -hmm. it made me squirm. Well, uh, Arnie Duncan, who is President Obama's education secretary, tweeted, agree or disagree with Betsy DeVos on any issue. Let's all agree she really needs to be in public schools. Please let her in. <laughs> so there's a real tension here because, I mean, you talk about the fact that the Tea Party benefited Republicans. It did not benefit the Republicans who lost in primaries mm -hmm. because they weren't viewed as... As, as rigorous enough by the Tea Party base. So I think a yes. lot of Democrats are figuring out how to carefully ride this wave. Okay, I have a few questions about the formal or informal role the national uh, DNC might play. There's mm -hmm. a fight to see who's gonna be the chair of that group. Um, they also are commissioning a post-election autopsy of their performance in this last election. Uh, much like Republicans did in 2012. Now Republicans and Trump in 2016 didn't follow that playbook and won, but what, will, what might we see in this autopsy this year? Listening is not enough. You have to go beyond listening to people. You have to go into their lives much more deeply than a lot of candidates did in 2016 and a lot of journalists didn't in 2016. Yeah. I, I would make the case for many of the people on the NPR staff, you know, Don Gagne and lots of others, who for years have been out in exactly the parts of the country that have been identified as the, the, the key to Donald Trump's victory, you know, central Wisconsin, upstate Michigan, Don is lifelong Michigander, uh, in central Pennsylvania. These were the places where the election was lost. And Don and a lot of other NPR people, member station people, lots of them, have been out there reporting on this. But I, I don't know that there was enough journalism that appreciated why there was such an overlap between counties experiencing record levels of opioid abuse and heroin addiction and deaths from heroin. Turned out to be counties that then, to everyone's shock, in 2016 flipped from twice voting for Obama to voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. How much of the autopsy, though, is going to have to admit what the Democrats did right? They won a national popular vote by some three million votes, and they have a majority in, lo in lots of ways. Like, I mean, some of it is just the fact that people that vote for Democrats live in big cities and on the coast. Mm -hmm. So what does the autopsy tell them to do, move? Well, I think there's like... <laughs> just the organizing buses to ship people to, uh, to swing states. Well. Um, I think that that tension continues to play out. The House Democrats are up in Baltimore this week having uh, their, their caucus retreat. And even then you're seeing the back and forth of, no, we were doing everything right. It was just messaging. No, our messaging was totally off. No, we have to totally refocus. And I think they're, I mean, they do have a little bit of time to figure this out. We're not, the next election isn't too soon, but, but there's, there's a lot of tension from, from top Democrats on that. And that's why you have so many people running for DNC chair. Well, and the one thing I'd throw in there, by the way, is keep in mind that, what, 20-something percent of the el of eligible voters voted Republican and 20-something percent voted Democrat. So that leaves a big, big, big area of people who did not vote. So, I mean, getting out the vote, it, it's boring because we say it all the time, but getting out the vote is always a big deal because voter turnout is simply pretty low. Yeah. We have to wrap. Okay. But before we leave the stage, be sure to vote for Group 1 so we win. <laughs> That's a joke. We're all on the same team. Um, we're going to tap in. Four of our colleagues will all be back soon. 
As we exit, listen for this fun little remix of the theme song that Brent and I made together. It's really fun. Okay, bye for now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. All right. Well, that was a peaceful transfer of power. <laughs> and we are here, ready to rock, where Sam's group left off. And so let's introduce ourselves. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House for NPR. <laughs> I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And before we go any further, just want to shout out to all of our other NPR colleagues on the Washington desk who aren't here tonight um, and who you also hear on the podcast from time to time. Mara Liason, Carrie Johnson, Jessica Taylor, Don Gagne, Brian Naylor, Peter Overby, and of course, Nina Totenberg, plus... All the editors and reporters you don't hear who make our work better. Um, So can we get a a round of applause for them? That was a standing ovation, just in case anyone was wondering. Everybody stood up. Everybody stood up. (laughs) Okay, let's touch on a bit more news this week. Today, the Washington Post broke a big story about Donald Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who is a retired general. They cite nine intelligence officials, present and past, to say that Flynn communicated with the Russian ambassador about U.S. sanctions on Russia back in December um, before President Trump was President Trump. Now, remember also in late December, President Obama retaliated against Russia for its interference in the presidential election. He kicked 35 Russian diplomats out of the country and put new sanctions on Russia. And then, in a surprise move, Russian President Vladimir Putin decided to not respond in kind um, and to instead wait until President Trump took office. Well, today, the Post and the New York Times say that Flynn talked to the Russian ambassador about the sanctions around the time they were announced. Okay, that was a mouthful. (laughs) Um, Why is that a big deal? Well, there's some history here, obviously. Going back to the middle of the campaign, uh, ties between Paul Manafort, uh, Trump's middle campaign manager and Russia, the sort of unusual statements that Donald Trump made about Vladimir Putin, admiring statements, that that's an unusual position for a Republican candidate to take. So there's always been a little bit of question about connections between Donald Trump and, and Russia and Vladimir Putin. And then when President, former President Obama put these sanctions in against Russia, and we learn that Flynn is talking to the Russians right around that same time. That's, that piece of the story, this conversation we knew in December, and there were a lot of questions right. about it, and the vice president-elect came out and said, 
Those conversations between Flynn and Russian ambassador were just, they were pleasantries, they were logistical talks, setting up a future conversation with, with the president-elect. And the story really evolved in terms of what the administration or the transition team was saying happened, when the conversation happened, what they, whether it was just Christmas greetings or something else. We're kind of annoying as reporters because we ask all the nosy questions like, <laughs> what did they actually say? <laughs> did they talk about sanctions or not? Um, and we asked those questions. And when I talked to uh, who became the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, he, at 10 p.m. At, on a Friday night, when he, we when we got this confirmed, yeah, I mean, he acknowledged that he was wrong earlier in the day. That he said that he had misread Flynn's phone. That actually Flynn and the ambassador did talk on the day of the sanctions. So I asked. Well, did they talk about the sanctions? And he said, who knows? <laughs> but, it's, but it's doubtful. doubtful. And I said, doubtful? Like, why, how did, why would it be like, doubtful or who knows? He said, well, that's what Flynn told me. So they were clearly leaving open the possibility that they did talk. So when you see this Washington Post report that identifies nine intelligence officers, and by the way, if you're talking to the Russians and you're a former intelligence official, you should probably know someone else in the U.S. government is listening to that conversation. Right. And in fact, the New York Times says today there is a transcript of that phone call. So when the question is raised, <laughs> who knows, the someone U.S. Knows. Intelligence yes, Committee knows it, and they At Tamara Keith it. NPR on Twitter, you just send me a DM. I would love to get that transcript. <laughs> <laughs> but so one of the complicating factors here is that that same weekend that Domenico and I were talking to transition officials, Mike Pence, the vice president-elect, went on CBS and said, quote, they did not discuss anything having to do with the United States' decision to expel diplomats or impose censure against Russia. Well, that is in direct contradiction with what we are now hearing. I talked to an administration official today who told me that he was stressing that the vice president based his comments on conversations with General Flynn. Yeah, I mean, that to me, when I when this story broke, seemed like the, the immediate political impact is, did Michael Flynn, if these, if these reports are accurate, did he misrepresent his conversations to the vice president? And then did he, in turn, make the vice president publicly spread misinformation? The vice president also dismissed these suggestions as conspiracy theories or and that they shouldn't even be given any mind. So this new report makes the vice president in a very bad position, which seems to elevate the politics of this as to something that the White House is going to have to respond to, even just on the political level. And what does what does the vice president say? And how does he respond? Because I have to imagine he's not very happy right now. But yeah. the real question obviously becomes, yeah, you know, is what there a legal happens thing? to Mike Flynn? And... I don't know that it's clear because I think we know that Donald Trump likes Michael Flynn. Um, you know, the only potential opening for, you know, Trump seeming to be irritated at all with Flynn was apparently the report that he had called Flynn at three o'clock in the morning to ask him about the US dollar. And Flynn said, call an economist. And he didn't like the answer. So, <laughs> so Domenico, this uh, thing is thrown around a lot, the idea of the Logan Act, um, which is a 1799 law. Domenico, you have fallen in a rabbit hole. Would you like to share with us what you've learned down there? 
Well, okay, so no one has ever been prosecuted under the Logan Act, which basically says that you're not allowed to talk about uh, foreign policy to another government and contradict the foreign policy of the current administration. We so should I, point out the Logan Act only applies to private citizens. Now, the Logan Act, it should be pointed out, has been sort of a political weapon to kind of shame people into not doing that as opposed to something that's ever been prosecuted. It's never been prosecuted. The only point of trivia I will, I will fill you in on that I learned today was that someone was actually indicted under the Logan Act in 1803. Ooh. And that was because of an anonymous column that someone wrote saying that when the United States expanded west, that the western part of the United States should be a different country allied with France. The government tracked down who that person was, a man named Francis Flournoy. There you go, um, for all your trivia nights. Um, and that's the only person ever indicted, but it never went to trial, so it was never prosecuted. So there really there isn't go. a lot of legal precedent here. No, but none. There's a classic story in Washington, right? It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And I'm not making any judgments about whether there was a crime here. But or a cover-up. Well, I guess there was kind of a cover-up. But, but this, this is now more from a story of what did Michael Flynn talk about with the Russian ambassador, and was that out of bounds, to what did Michael Flynn tell Sean Spicer and Mike Pence, and what did they tell the American people, and how does that match up with what actually happened? And remember, the Senate Intelligence Committee is conducting an investigation into all of this right now, for partly the Russian attempts to influence the election, uh, Russian intervention in the U.S. political system. This is already the subject, and you have a lot of people in Congress who have taken people like John McCain, people like Claire McCaskill, a senator from Missouri, who are taking a much harder line on this, and they have said today that this Flynn, this latest uh, element in this story, is going to be part of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So it, there is an element of oversight in this, and people are looking into it. Um, today, President Trump had a press conference, and yet, remarkably, this didn't come up in that press conference. It was, it was a joint presser uh, with Trump and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was visiting the White House today, or as President Trump called it, the very famous White House. Um, Scott. But, and now He's they are, that. now they're at the Winter White House which is Mar-a-Lago, uh, where the conversation will continue. Scott, you were there. Also very famous. Also very famous. <laughs> what, what stood out to you in that press conference? Well, it's typical that when a foreign leader comes to visit, they have sort of a truncated press conference. This is not a full-on, open-ended press conference. If it had been, I'm sure the question of Flynn would have been probably number three on the dance chart. It's called a two-and-two. Two. It's called a two-and-two. Two. You get two questions from the American press and two questions from, in this case, the Japanese press. And Unfortunately, uh, the first question from the American press kind of went unanswered by both President Trump and Prime Minister Abe, so the second American questioner basically just repeated the first question, which had to do with the executive order that our first team discussed. And don't the, forget the TPP. Ban. And TPP. Which yeah, they they're, didn't, they're, didn't answer about uh, the yeah. trade. Two, the two basic trade. questions to, to, to President Trump, where do we go on the travel ban, and to Prime Minister Abe, what next now that the U.S. has pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Prime Minister Abe had invested tremendous political capital in, in getting passed. He was a big supporter of the trade pact. So, and then that's it from the American side. And the Japanese reporters weren't terribly concerned about what Michael Flynn might have told Mike Pence. No. Or, and nobody asked about Ivanka's 
jewelry or clothing or and, anything. Yeah, but I actually, else. I thought it was really fascinating to watch the evolution of Donald Trump on the world stage, having to kind of grow into his own skin. After watching him last week with Theresa May from the UK, where he really didn't seem to have an agenda in the way she did. You know, she came out there with three or four points that she wanted to make to talk about post-Brexit, what it was going to be like for the UK. Donald Trump didn't seem to know what he wanted to say in that, in that meeting. Uh, but in this one, there was a market change. He had six points that he rattled off. He was much more disciplined. He read from a sheet. You know, he didn't answer the, the questions, uh, you know, but watching his evolution was really fascinating. Also watching Abe's kind of Trumpian uh, presentation was also really fascinating. You know, he talked about wanting to bring jobs to the United States. We're going to make $150 billion investment. Uh, talked about a bullet train potentially that they could help us build from New York to D.C. so Trump could get from Trump Tower to D.C. in one hour, he said. <laughs> he even played to American nationalism and said, you know, a lot of you mispronounce my name as Abe. And I have like to say, Abe he's, he's like, that's kind of cool with me because Abe Abe Lincoln was awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, that kind of what he translation said. Yeah. That, we yeah, that was the translation that we did. My okay, Japanese so is a little rusty. One of the questions that the, or I don't know that it was actually the question that the Japanese journalist asked, but it led to this, is a discussion of China and the relationship with China. Um, it was almost like cramming for finals or something. The night before Abe came to the White House, the president had a call with the president of China, Xi Jinping, um, where, and I guess they discussed the one China policy, which is something that President Trump had, after getting elected, said, I don't know, maybe we won't do this. It could be a bargaining chip, you know, this one China policy. Someone now needs to explain the one China policy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since 1979, the United States has recognized uh, People's Republic of China, Beijing, as, as the one China. And while we still uh, have ties to Taiwan, the, the president of the United States had not spoken to the leader of, of Taiwan, except when Donald Trump made that surprise call as, as president-elect uh, back in Accepted December. Accepted the call. Accepted the call, yeah. but it had been a, it was a an arranged, arranged, call. An arranged call. At that time, after that call, there were some tweets from Donald Trump saying, well, why, you know, why shouldn't I take a call from the Taiwanese leader? And why shouldn't we be open to maybe throwing a, a, a monkey wrench into this uh, policy that dates back decades? And by the way, the one China policy is really, really important to the folks in Beijing. They're, they're not going to take that sitting down. If, if the United States suddenly starts thinking we're going to re-recognize Taiwan as the legitimate government of, of China, that's a deal breaker for Xi Jinping. Right. So we, we had actually thought that President Trump was kind of stringing along Xi Jinping, and he's talked to lots of other world leaders in the first three weeks like he's been in office, of but hadn't spoken to you know the leader of the number two economy in the world and a major player. It now sort of seems like maybe Xi Jinping was stringing Trump along and was saying, I'm not going to talk to you until you let it be known that you're going to embrace that one China policy, which the administration did do uh, But what was last so night. interesting about Trump, too, is that in all throughout the course of the campaign, he, he drew such a hard line about China. He talked so yeah. tough about China. And he ran as someone who was going to be really disruptive and rewrite the rules of global engagement. And his decision and his announcement that he would enforce the One China policy was a fairly mainstream decision. I mean, the, he's upholding the same precedent of every president since 1979. And in, I think people that were looking for him, and even as late as December, he was saying One China could be renewed 
renegotiated until they don't manipulate their currency anymore. He had he had made a lot of saying, I'm going to negotiate a better deal. And at the end, he just said, I'm good. He, 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 he argued as if he was going to get something in return for the one China policy. And basically what he got in return was a phone call with Xi Jinping. So, I mean, is this, though, I is it like a crazy, like a Fox kind of strategy where you make him think that you're going to take away this thing that's really important to them, and then you go with the status quo and suddenly China's grateful? <laughs> I know, that's alternate of, reality That's idea. a lot of ifs. Um, you know, I mean, I think Trump learned that the relationship with China is a very consequential one. I mean, the fact is that China owns a trillion dollars of U.S. debt, that half of the American trade deficit worldwide is Chinese. They could really make U.S. businesses' lives difficult. Uh, they could, uh, you know, and I think a lot of China watchers were concerned about even worse than that, the potential for, you know, a provocation in the South China Sea or uh, something worse. And that is a, I think the, the risks and ramifications weren't something that were talked about, and they don't easily lend itself to a presidential campaign. You know, one thing that has stood out to me when we talk about Japan, because we were talking about Japan earlier, and the way Trump talks about China. I want to read one quote to you. Donald Trump said, we are living in very precarious times. If you look at what certain countries are doing to this country, I mean, they've totally taken advantage of this country. I'm talking about trade deficits. Um, they talk about free trade. Okay, was that China? Is that Mexico? Who knows? Could be. No, it was Japan in what 1988. Year? that Donald Trump was essentially playing Mad Libs, takes his message and move it forward to this time. That literally sounds like something he has yeah. said in the last 48 hours. Yeah, well, no, it's- It is an interesting point because Donald Trump has changed his stripes in many different ways, but the uh, economic nationalism that was a hallmark of his presidential campaign is where he has been for decades. Yeah, and I think that's why this campaign was more the moment meeting the man than the man meeting the moment. That is a great segue to move on to the more thematic part of our conversation here. Um, when it comes to President Trump and what's next, we wanted to talk about what's next in terms of actual policies he may enact. Um, obviously, he's done a lot of executive actions, but three weeks in, we haven't seen legislation or detailed plans on some of the biggest items he talked about in the campaign. You know, the repeal and replace of Obamacare, tax reform, infrastructure. So, Sue, yeah. you're over in Congress <laughs> where these things would have to go. What's up with that? Well, you know, he is, they have said from the beginning that they would not really roll out their re repeal and replace plans until Tom Price was confirmed as Health and Human Services Secretary. So I think in the next coming weeks, it's going to be really interesting to see how quickly and how fast Tom Price seeks actions as HHS secretary, which is really important to remember that the HHS secretary has tremendous say in how they can rewrite these laws. And he individually can do so much to affect the Obamacare law without Congress. And Tom Price has shown a willingness to do this, and he has a lot of policy ideas on this front. So I think the next three weeks may be more telling than the past three weeks exactly where the administration is, because quite frankly, Congress doesn't really know where the administration is. And the president, since the election, through mainly through tweets, has kind of moved the ball a couple times. They've gone from just repeal and figure it out later to now they're at repeal in place should happen almost simultaneously. But there is zero consensus on what exactly that's going to look like and when they can do it. Remember, and, a few weeks ago, the president told the Washington Post that uh, their own replacement plan, the White House health care replacement plan, was 
basically all done except for a few I's to be dotted and T's yeah. to cross. And they were going to roll it out just as soon as Secretary Price was confirmed, which um, I don't think we've seen the plan. Last Sunday on in a Super Bowl, inter- actually taped on Friday before Super Bowl with, with uh, Bill O'Reilly, the president says, well, we might have the basics of the plan in place by the end of the year. And, then today, and then today, again, he said it's... Final strokes. Almost, almost done, yeah, final strokes. So it's somewhere between next couple of days and the end of the year. So, I, S- similarly, uh, he, he's, he's said that he's going to roll out a phenomenal tax plan within a few weeks, but the tax writers on the Hill seem completely befuddled by that. They, even though they there, also, ha- there have certainly been conversations about tax, and, and their goal, if I'm not mistaken, is to do Obamacare first and then the tax plan. That's their, their preferred sequencing, right? It is, but there's also an interesting power dynamic going on here where I think, particularly in the House, uh, conservatives and leadership, they really want to take ownership of the legislation. They want to write it there. They want to put the first marker on it. And in the Senate, you hear a lot more from senators saying, I think I'd like the White House to send up a plan before we start doing anything, because that will allow them to create some distance, particularly on health care. I mean, we're already seeing sort of the pushback to some of these repeal efforts. Uh, And you're seeing the approval rating of the Affordable Care Act going up. I mean, now the the public is getting more and more engaged as repeal becomes more real. So we've started to see a lot of Republicans sort of put the brakes on this thing and say, I'm not sure we can move as fast as the administration wants to move fast. And then you have the conservative wing saying, we need to move tomorrow. We have been campaigning on this for six years. And if we do not deliver on this, it is going to completely upset the base. You know, I would just say that I think we need to keep in mind that Trump supporters think that what Donald Trump has done so far has been great. You know, they think that the posture he has taken is exactly what he ran on. The executive orders that he has passed, the sort of uh, big bang of three weeks of big rollouts of of executive orders or big statements of principle that he is saying to his base, I am going to follow through on the promises that I made to you and I am going to fight for them. Now, the realities of some of those things, you know, we heard earlier about the executive order on the immigration ban being hung up in court, but some of these other big ticket items, healthcare being one major one that Republicans have talked about for years as being a huge principle. You know, he got them their, their Supreme Court pick if he gets through, and all signs are that he will in Neil Gorsuch. Next is healthcare, the tax code, uh, and we'll see what else. But those are huge, huge items that, you know, will only fuel his base be happy with him. When's the last time we had major tax reform, 1986? Yeah. One quick thing trivia piece to remember, and then I know we got to move on, but most, the majority of Republicans in Congress have never served with a Republican in the White House. So when we talk about Republicans and President Trump figuring out how to govern, most Republicans in Congress have never really had to take control of that process when it was consequences. You know, the, the votes against Obamacare to repeal Obamacare, this was all messaging, opposition. It's what Democrats are trying to figure out how to do now. How do you be the minority party and how do you be the opposition party? So it's a lot harder when the training wheels come off and you have to write the laws that are actually going to affect people's lives. And we're seeing those growing pains, not just in the White House, but also on Capitol Hill. All right. Now it is time to move on and bring the rest of the crew back out here. So let's hear that music and we'll ask answer some of your questions. This podcast and the following message are made possible by LearnVest, an online financial advice company that believes you should focus the same attention you give to the health of your mind and body 
to your finances. LearnVest believes in wellness in all forms, and they can help you sleep better at night knowing your financial future is secure. LearnVest, it's wellness for your wallet. Get a $50 credit when you sign up today or schedule a call and see how they can help you at learnvest.com slash NPR politics. I'm Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. What has pointy ears, a cape, a huge ego, and knees that don't bend? That's right, Lego Batman. To get the skinny on his new movie and lots of other good stuff to watch and read, find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. All right, we're back, and if you're listening on the podcast, I'm Scott Detrow, and now all eight of us are out on stage. So before the show, we had some question cards in the lobby of the theater, and we picked a few of those to answer from the audience, and we're also going to pull some of those questions that you tweeted at us. Uh, Sam and I are going to go through this. Sam's dealing with the Twitter questions. Why don't you start us off? Yes, we have a question... From Laura Friedenbach. Are you here? Laura, thank you, Laura. Question says, quote, do you think protests against appointees like DeVos will continue and affect how they do their jobs? Short answer, probably not. Um, most cabinet appointees are forgotten about because they're boring bu- I'm like bureaucrats, right? <laughs> like, we won't be talking about DeVos in six weeks. Oh. Well, it depends <laughs> what the I don't know. <laughs> We might be talking, mean, somebody's going to be talking about DeVos. I mean, the, the teachers union... But not union, with the fervor at which they are now. The teachers union is not going to... You know, there are teachers unions in America. They are strong. They're not going to forget no, quickly. but... Okay. Name the ed secretary that came after Anya Duncan. Well, this is D.C. <laughs> I'm just saying. Lots and the, of And these are NPR are listeners. Am I right? I was talking to one of the people who's kind of organizing all of these protests, and he said that one point was they know that unless a lot of Republicans defect, they weren't going to stop any of these nominations. I mean, DeVos was as close as they came, and she's still education secretary. But they said part of this is a long-term play because then Democrats don't have to have any responsibility for whatever these departments do that's controversial. I mean, look at the Iraq War which uh, Democrats obviously ran against in 2004 and 2006 and 2008, but Republicans were always able to come back and say, let's talk about that bipartisan vote to approve the war, and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry voting for it. All right, we're going to go to a question from Billy from Minnesota. Where are you at, Billy? All right, Billy asked, will Senate Democrats use the filibuster for Gorsuch? Sounds like a Sue question. Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, The short answer is we don't know the answer to that yet. We do know that... Uh. um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I would say this. One of the things I've talked to both with senators and with staff in the Senate is they do say that the climate there already is really antagonistic, that the fact that Democrats are slow walking all of these nominees, the fact that there's already threats to go nuclear in the Senate. As one staffer said to me, I thought it would be like this, you know, by by August, six months in, we would be more. And it's the starting point of this Congress is really polarized. So that is a climate that I think lends itself towards people who want to have at least a nuclear showdown. 
I don't know if at the end they actually change the rules or if they, they come up with another gang of 8, 10, 14, pick your whatever number of senators you want, to find a way to get through this. Uh, we do know that there are several Republicans, like Susan Collins of Maine, John McCain of Arizona, who are very resistant to this, which so you would think it would make it harder. But I got to tell you, there are partisans in both parties that are ready for this fight. And I don't think it's going to be a simple solution, and we're going to hear a lot more about it. All right, question from Kate from Tallahassee, who is a reporter for member station WFSU. All right, WFSU. And Kate has small handwriting, so I'm going to work through this, but I think I got it. <laughs> the Pew Research Center's statistics on partisan sorting and its effect on nearly every asset of our lives keeps me up at night. <laughs> All right, what is the best way for individual people to counteract that division? Danielle, do you want to get this correct? Yes. All right. So... Here's the thing about the Pew Research Center data. That... <laughs> Are there Pew Hello, people Pew. here? <laughs> Thank All you right, here. let's hear it for Pew. Woo! Nerds! Okay, I, now I, listen to Danielle. I used to work there. It's, it's a great place. Um, all right. So the Pew data, a lot of it measures ideological uh, polarization, how far you are to the right or left. There is, in the academic community, a little bit of debate over really how much ideological polarization there is. However... There is definitely affective polarization, which means people on the left really don't like the right, people on the right really don't like the left, and that has definitely grown over time. Here's the problem. The factors that contributed to this are out of the bottle. The internet is not going away. The fact that you like your particular far left or far right websites, that ain't going away. So, I mean, Ron and I were talking about this backstage. I mean. Open up OkCupid, okay change your settings, and date someone on the other side of the aisle. I'm serious. Like, make friends on the other side of the aisle. This is the only, and you know what? You alone aren't gonna change anything, and this is why this is so hard. You and everybody you know has to do this, and, every, and more people. So this is why this is so hard, and why this kind of polarization isn't going to stop, <laughs> I don't think. It is now less objectionable to most Americans to have one of their offspring marry a person of a different faith, race, nationality, uh, than it is for them to marry someone with a different party affiliation. <laughs> I have good friends who are Republican and Democrat married together, and they have a very successful happy marriage. Well, that's delight. Shout out to PJ That's, really, that's delight. But I, I think that's a pretty good sign that we need to dial this down and, uh, and try to de-emphasize the partisanship and the polarization in any way we can. And the best way to do that, we have found with situations such as interracial animosity, is interracial marriage, interracial love. The solution with respect to religions, very much the same. So try to find a person of the other party. <laughs> but you Go know, you, a partisan. You don't... You don't have to make a lifetime commitment, though. Just, just take... Just like a coffee. Just, this show took a turn. Just, just take an hour on Sunday or maybe Saturday and go to, a, go to a different church and stick around for the coffee hour and see what people are talking about. I'm just going to have a You're track. No it's a good place you, you, to meet you girls. You really recovered that, Scott. Yeah. I'm just going to have like you, a you constant track in my head now of Ron saying, <laughs> interracial love, interracial marriage. There are worse things. I, we on. have another question from Twitter. From Mike Yarbrough. I'm not going to ask what race you are, Mike. Uh, question says, What's next for journalists in a post-truth America? He's a teacher visiting from BK. I'm gonna tell you my simple answer to that question. 
for journalists in a post-truth era. Keep telling the truth. Yep. You know, we've, we've started uh, a lot of fact-checking during this campaign. I think that there are people who are still interested in reality and in facts. And, you know, if people aren't, then we will source it really well and hope that people will come around and uh, recognize that. But you know what? We just put our heads down, look at the facts, keep it simple. Uh, we started our Trump tweet annotator that you can check out online at npr.org slash Trump tweets. Uh, where Danielle in particular is giving you a lot of context to what's going on, more than those 140 characters, um, you know, and you just, you know, stick to, stick to real news, stick to the facts, and do All that right. as well as possible. Next question, um, dealing in real facts, uh, from Sarah in Alexandria, who asked a question about the White House. So, Tam, this is for you. Uh, Sean Spicer said yesterday we would see the budget in a few weeks. Is that realistic, do you think? The OMB director hasn't been confirmed yet, right? No. Okay, so OMB, Office of Management and Budget, Mick Mulvaney, congressman from South Carolina, that total budget hardliner. I mean, he makes budget hawks look like budget doves. Yeah. He's very serious about, like, And he you has know. some very different ideas on entitlement programs than the man he's going to be working for. Right. Um, so, first, he probably needs to get confirmed before they can truly have a budget. Yeah, Scott, it's like budgets are sort of this thing that is more of a, it's an idea document. It's a vision thing. It's a philosophy. <laughs> and it's, it's not legislation. Congress, I mean, the most common thing with a presidential budget is that the opposition party in Congress will bring it up at some point and try to make the, the party of the president vote on it to prove how unpopular it is. It, it will be interesting, though, to, to see the budget whenever it comes out and, and how some of the programs and promises that have been made actually pencil out. And especially how it's going to compare to the Paul Ryan budgets of the past six years. You know, that's like what has sort of changed the line on where the Republican Party is on a lot of issues and particularly on entitlements. You know, yeah. if Donald Trump puts out a budget that protects, keeps Medicare and Social Security in their current states, I mean, that would be a pretty provocative statement for a pre Republican president. I think we just came up with like three story ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, uh... As you all probably know, we end the show each week with Can't Let It Go. That's where we uh, talk about something we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Uh, Tam, you have some tweets you want to talk about. The, my Can't Let It Go is that Kellyanne Conway has become both senior counselor to President Trump and senior subtweeter. So, Hillary Clinton last night expressed joy or something about uh, the Ninth Circuit decision by simply tweeting 3-0, 3-0, unanimous decision. And then uh, Kellyanne Conway, a couple of hours later, uh, does a quote retweet, P-A-W-I-M-I, -I, which is to say, here are three blue wall states that we won, because uh, <laughs> Because that's her can't let it go. Yeah, she can't let it go. <laughs> so for something that you do with your thumbs, two thumbs themselves, Danielle, some interesting observation about thumbs and fundraising this week. Yes. Um, so we're talking about Donald Trump's hands again. So let's go. Um, <laughs> so the RNC put out this really fascinating report this week uh, about 
how their fundraising websites uh, pages performed. And they did some very minute level uh, A-B testing. You know, they show someone a page with a green button and then they give this person a page with a red button and this one with a blue button. Like very minute things and see which one brought back the most fundraising. So, uh, fascinatingly enough, green buttons do pretty well. But aside from that... Money, they, money, money, money. Well, yeah, it's exactly... Well, who knows? But the point is that they did different photos of Donald Trump. And the photo that seemed to, in many of these cases, do the best between, like, serious black and white Donald Trump, you know, high-fiving a crowd Donald Trump. No, it was Donald Trump smiling with two thumbs up. I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, like, who knows why? Like, maybe he just looks more relaxed and authentic, but for Does some reason... Does this work for NPR fundraising, yeah. too? <laughs> if only we could do it on the radio. So anyway, I, I was just... I can't get into the minds of donors, but I have no idea why two thumbs up would make you fork over more money. But it's yeah, wait, true. Was it, were, these, were these donors to the Republican Party or Democratic Party? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a great Sam. question. <laughs> Sam, Sam Brent is yelling at us from the back and says you have one minute for your can't let it go. But you have a microphone, so I guess... That's right. Where's your microphone, We're not Brent? live. <laughs> um... My can't let it go is more about the things that I've forgotten post-election than what I can't let go. I have noticed with myself and with my friends, all of the attention that I used to pay to like the popular culture is focused on Donald Trump. For instance, yesterday, Drake and J-Lo broke up. I didn't find out until today when Brent told me. Usually I would have been all over that news. I think about the most recent big events that aren't about politics, they're actually all about politics. The SAGs are about who was saying stuff about Donald Trump. Uh, the Grammys tomorrow are all full of questions about who's gonna say what about Donald Trump. The Super Bowl became one big metaphor for the election results. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Wait, what and about And I don't the, know when it stops. What about the Beyonce twins? That was all, a, that was all made a joke about her, her having babies to fight Donald Trump. It's true. Like, I don't understand when this stops, and it's crazy-making. Uh, but the good news for you is that, and I'm going to make this sad right now, <laughs> this is your last show on the NPR Politics Podcast. Aww. But Aww. you're working on something new. I'm working on something new. And you can get back into these things that you've not been paying attention to. Why don't you That's tell right. us a little bit about uh, your new show? Yeah. Um, so... A Thank you. I haven't told what it's about yet. Um, what happened? <laughs> um, we should just say that up on the screen it now says it bye, y'all. It should have said Felicia. <laughs> um, all the time in the office, I annoy all of my colleagues and walk from desk to desk and floor to floor and just randomly start talking to people about all kinds of stuff. And I'm making a new thing where I try to take those conversations and bring them to you. So a big part of what the new show was going to be is me in conversation with my friends and colleagues at work about what they're working on and what they're thinking about. Another big part of it is going to be me talking to people out in the world and talking to listeners as well. So we actually have put up a few test runs into NPR One. It's a great app you should download, O-N-E. So go to NPR One and search for Sam's new thing to find it. And we have everything from, uh, it'll be up tomorrow, but a chat with me and Ms. Totenberg all about the courts. 
me and Steven Thompson talking about Lady Gaga's halftime performance this past game, uh, and me and Barry Hardiman of NPR uh, doing a reported advice segment. Uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun conversations. It is going to maintain the charm and spirit and love of the politics podcast, and I'll be talking with these folks often. So stay tuned, it's happening, I'm excited. Yeah, stay tuned. But, but, it will also have interracial love and interracial marriage. I want to make Ron a t-shirt that says that. I have one. We are going to really miss you on this podcast, though, and I think one reason that I particularly am going to miss you is that, you know, when, when you train to be a broadcaster, they basically train you to be kind of a semi-human person who talks about the news and shows a little bit of personality, but in a kind of robotic way, you know, that's just the way that sometimes you sound on the air, and I feel like you on the show made it clear, made it okay to have feelings about this, to say, I'm angry, or I'm confused, or I'm freaked out. And like, 2016 was a year to feel all those feelings, and you brought them, you brought them to the show and you made all of us better, but I think that's a main reason why you connected with, with listeners so deeply. So that's, that's something that I think you taught a lot of us. And, and since I have been trained not to have feelings, I had to write this down. Because <laughs> I, I don't know how to be sentimental, so I had to write it. It's okay. Um, we'll work with you. I feel the feels. I just don't articulate the feels. So here goes. You're sentimental enough, Tim. Articulate them. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase Vice President Mike Pence, <laughs> working with you on this podcast has been one of the great honors of my life. You know, now, like every great musical supergroup, vocalness is getting a spinoff. <laughs> so, Sam, you are going to be our Ricky Martin to our Menudo, <laughs> the Wings to our Beatles, <laughs> the Justin Timberlake to our NSYNC. I'll take it. And of course, the Beyonce to our Destiny's Child. <laughs> say is that I can't wait for the reunion tour. Me too. Thank you. So I have some final quick parting thoughts to say thank you guys. Um, the socks that I'm wearing tonight were actually sent in to me by a listener to the podcast and they have hashtag vocalness on the side and airplanes along the bottom to symbolize how much we've traveled this year. Um, this is just a tidbit of all of the things that we've received from you guys over the last year and a half that we love and appreciate. Whether it was tweets or emails or handwritten notes and letters or candy and coffee and all kinds of stuff. Um, we felt such warmth and love from you all the entire last year and a half we've been doing this. And my favorite note that we got over the course of the campaign said in one line, you helped me get through this year. And I read it all the time and I think, and I, I've saved all the notes, but I read that one over again and I say, no, you guys helped us get through this year. Amen. I think that 
in a grueling election season, um, part of what keeps us going, a big part of what keeps us going and keeps me going is the warmth and love and kindness this community has shown to us uh, all around the country, all over social media. We feel it and we appreciate it. And it was particularly worthwhile to see it all happen this year in a year when the discourse got nastier. It seemed that you guys got nicer. And when I think of that, I think of this poem that I really like a lot. It's short, I'm gonna read it, it's very short. I don't like long poems. And the poem says, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. You guys, for the last year or so, have lit my sky. Thank you. That is a wrap. Thank you to the Warner Theater. Thank you to WAMU for partnering with us on tonight's show, which was planned and produced by Barbara Sprunt and Jessica Goldstein with engineering by Andy Huther and Kevin Waite. Renee Clark did our great graphics. Meg Kelly's our photographer. You can't see the graphics if you're listening on the podcast, but we can tell you they did look great. This podcast is produced every week by Brent Bachman and Barbara Sprunt with help lately from Rachel Quester. The podcast is edited, and it is hard to edit it sometimes, by Mathani Maturi, Shirley Henry, and the supervising senior editor of NPR's Washington Desk is Beth Donovan. Sam, you want to take us out? Yeah. Um, Thank you for listening to the NPR. Yes. Podcast. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>